I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, and we'll be putting in at verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch has the remarkable distinction of being the first of two persons who went to heaven without dying. The other, of course, being the prophet Elijah who was caught up into heaven by a whirlwind. We see that in 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11. He lived, that is Enoch, during what is referred to as the antediluvian period, that era which preceded God's judgment in the form of a worldwide flood. We read of him in Genesis chapter 5, 21 through 24, when Enoch had lived six or five years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah, 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. That's the record of his life, as recorded in Genesis chapter 5, 21 through 24. This morning, we want to answer the question, what were those features of Enoch's walk with God, whereby he pleased God. There are certain features of Enoch's walk which must be true of your walk with God, of my walk with God, if we are to please God. In the first place, Enoch's walk with God, whereby he pleased God, was marked by a definite, decisive turn Toward God. His walk with God began with a definite, decisive turn toward God. Though Enoch is reputed as having walked with God for all of 300 years, he evidently did not walk with God from day one of his life. When asked about their conversion, when they came to Christ, you will sometimes hear people remark, well, I've always known myself to be a Christian. And based on the teaching of the Word of God regarding the need for the new birth, the need for repentance and conversion without which one cannot see the kingdom of God, we know that that cannot be true. That Enoch did not, from day one of his life, began walking with God is clear from Genesis chapter 5, 21 and 22, which states, When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
And notice verse 22, Enoch walked with God after, notice that word, after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. The clear suggestion here is that the birth of his son Methuselah precipitated his conversion. That whereas he was very much part of the evil world of his day, living in the passions of his flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and was poised for the wrath of God like the rest of humankind, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3, there came a point when Enoch repented of his sins and in faith turned to God, living thereafter a life of obedience, consistent, conscientious obedience to the word and will of God. My friends, is that true of you? That is a question we must all ask. Perhaps you grew up in a Christian home, or even some might be under the sound of my voice now. You have grown up in a Christian home, or you are presently growing in a Christian home, and you all the while might be living under the assumption that somehow that makes you a Christian. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. You see, in light of what the Word of God teaches about sinful, fallen human nature, the fact that at heart one is at enmity with God and cannot in one's flesh please God, Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, one must of necessity be reconciled to God before one can begin walking with God. In fact, the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 3 verse 3 asks the question, which is very much relevant to what we're talking about. The prophet asked in Amos chapter 3 verse 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Applying this principle to Enoch, it is clear that by the grace of God, Enoch in being reconciled to God, willingly surrendered to the will of God before he began his journey with the Lord. And so unless there's been a definite point in time where you consciously and conscientiously turned to faith in Christ, understanding yourself to be a sinner and not just understanding yourself to be a sinner and understanding that Christ died for sin, but you personally trust in Christ as your Savior, unless you do that, and until you do that, you're not saved. A walk with God must begin with conversion. Enoch walked with God, the Word of God says, after he begot Methuselah. There was a definite, decisive turning toward God on the part of Enoch. But second, a second feature of Enoch's walk with God, whereby he pleased God, was his devotion. His devotion. His devotion to God. Having come to faith in God, there was on the part of Enoch dedication to the will and word of God. A commitment of heart and soul and mind to the matter of walking with the Lord. Indeed, his very name, Enoch, means dedicated. If you're looking for the name of a child, a grandchild, I suggest you give your son, your grandson, the name Enoch. 
Now, the impressiveness of Enoch's dedicated, devoted walk with God was evidenced by the fact that he walked with God, notice, for all of 300 years. 300 years. For three centuries, day in, day out, year after year, decade after decade, and yes, century after century, Enoch consistently walked with the Lord. What a challenge this is to you and me. What an encouragement to you and me because we are living in a world where at times we might be tempted to imagine, if not conclude, that there is no way we could live for God for so long. Walking with God, we gather here then, is not a seasonal affair. It is not confined to special occasions. It's not confined to Sundays. Walking with God is to be a constant, continual affair. Enoch walked with God consistently. This was what our Lord Jesus meant when he said that we, if we're to follow him, we must take up our crosses daily and follow him. The question is, what does a dedicated walk with God look like? What does it involve? Among other things, this devotion to God will be expressed in terms of putting first, above all else, his rule and reign in our hearts and lives. Seeking first, according to Matthew 6 verse 33, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, and his righteousness. We put God first. We put the matter of godly living first. We put God as number one in our hearts and lives. A dedicated walk with God involves making it our constant aim to please him in all things. Just like our Lord Jesus could say in John chapter 4 verse 34, my meat or my satisfaction is to do the will of God and to finish his work. Or, as he could say in John 8, verse 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. The fact is, there is no genuine walk with God. There is no genuine fellowshipping with God. There is no genuine communion with God where there is not an intent a desire and an aim to please him in all things and in every way. That was why Paul, as he prayed for the Colossian Christians, prayed as he did in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10, Paul's prayer for these believers with respect to their walk with the Lord was that they might, quote, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work. End quote. Walking with God devotedly means having his word central in our lives. Directing our lives, governing our thinking, influencing our attitudes. We see examples of this kind of devoted walk with God in scripture. Here's what God said concerning Levi the priest. God said of him, in Malachi chapter 2, verse 6, true instruction, that is the word of God, was in his mouth, and no wrong was found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from iniquity. A devoted walk with God is characterized by the centrality of the word of God 
in one's life upon one's lips. Psalm 37 verse 31 says of the righteous, the law of his God is in his heart. Clearly we see here that basic to a dedicated walk with God, a devoted walk with God, is the centrality of the word of God upon one's lips and within one's heart. Is that true of you? It certainly was of Enoch and that he was conversant with the word of God, that the word of God saturated his life can be seen in what Jude says of him in Jude 1, 14 and 15 because Jude tells us that Enoch had a prophetic ministry. He had a public ministry and here's what Jude records Enoch as saying as he ministered the word of God, he says, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And the question is, how could Enoch have known about the Lord's coming? Well, not just about the coming judgment of the flood, but no doubt, even about, in an extended way, the coming of the Lord Jesus in future judgment. Seeing he didn't have the scriptures, as you and I have today, the clear suggestion then is that God evidently communicated that to him directly. God made it known to him, whether in a vision or in some other way, now, you and I have the written word of God. We do not hear from God today through visions, through revelations. We have the completed, inscripturated word of God. And like Enoch, the point is, we should have that word in our hearts, on our lips, if we are to truly walk with God. Without the word of God, we have no way of knowing God, let alone walking with him. How are we going to walk with him and fellowship, fellowship with him if we do not know him? And how are we going to know him except through his word that he has communicated to us in the scriptures? Enoch's walk with God, whereby he pleased God, was marked thirdly by determination. It was marked by determination. First, there was a definite, decisive turn to God. Second, his walk was marked by devotion, by dedication. In fact, his very name is indicative of his dedication to God. But here it was, Enoch's walk was marked by determination, unnecessarily so, given the moral, spiritual, and social conditions of his day. You see, Enoch lived in a day of what we might describe as utter lawlessness. He lived in a day and age in which people, the world over, had cast off all moral restraint, just as it is in our time. Listen to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Here's how God, Moses, um, under, the, under, the, under divine inspiration, writes, he says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. I think it's the only time that God uses the word great in reference to man. And it's not in terms of any inherent greatness. It's the greatness of his sin. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that 
every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The conditions of Enoch's day were so egregiously evil. The word of God says here that God was sorry that he made man. And of course, what the writer is using here, Moses as he writes is using a device known as anthropomorphism, which is using human language to describe how God saw man's sin. It's not that God was literally sorry that he had made man, because the moment we say that it suggests that there is imperfection with God. The idea here is, the focus here is on the egregiousness, the heinousness of man's sin before God. It was, as it were, a stench in the nostrils of a holy God. Listen to Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. The word behold means look with amazement. It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'll destroy them with the earth. So evil were the days of Enoch, beloved, that God in judgment deluged the earth. With a massive flood, God destroyed all of life except Enoch, Noah, his family, and whatever creatures were placed on the ark. Those were the kinds of days in which Enoch lived and walked with God, which suggests that Enoch, therefore, must have had this quality of determination even as he walked, as he fellowshiped, as he communed with God. It took effort on Enoch's part to walk with God. Determined effort. And when we consider that those pre-flood days are not really different from these days in which you and I live, we come to realize then that yes, for you and me today, a walk with God is possible, however evil, however horrible, morally horrible our days might be. And it's going to get worse because the Bible says it. Even men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. Wonderful truth is that, yes, we can live for God. Yes, we can take our stand for God because the very power which enabled Enoch to stand true to God, to be determined in his walk with God, is the very same power that is available for you and me today. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the fourth place, Enoch's walk with God 
whereby he pleased God, was marked by discipline. His walk was marked by discipline. To walk with the Lord involves determination, it, it involves devotion, yes, but unless by God's grace there's an element of discipline, all will be in vain. Jesus clearly alluded to the need for such discipline when he declared in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Discipline. Deny himself, say no to himself, resolutely resist the impulses of the flesh and take up his cross, the symbol of death, the symbol of a determined will to go to one's death for the glory of God. Enoch knew of the disciplined rigor that was involved in walking with the Lord. How do we know that? We look back at Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, where it says, Enoch walked with God. The first thing we could say that his walk with God there was with disciplined fervor. His walk with God was with disciplined fervor, because in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, where we are told that he walked with God, the form of the verb in the Hebrew is in what is known as the hit pile stem. Now, that might not mean much to you, but let me explain what that is. The hit pile stem gives the verb a reflexive tone, so to speak, so that what the idea there in view is that the action that is being carried out is being, in other words, the, the, the door of the action is the recipient. It's a reflexive verb. So if we translate it, what it literally says in the Hebrew is this, he caused himself or made himself to walk with God. That's discipline. There was on the part of Enoch disciplined fervor. Suggested here is that his walk with God was marked by what? Intentionality. What is discipline? Discipline is... Ready? Is seeing that luscious cake, pastry, ice cream, sundae, with all the delicious nuts, crunchy nuts, and saying, no, I will not. It is getting up and going to the gym and doing a good workout until those muscles hurt. Enoch, in the midst of a world that was corrupt, in the midst of the evil of his day, in the midst of all the temptations, in the midst of all the worldly allurements, the word of God suggests that he made himself to walk with God. In other words, intentionally, to suggest it there is this, that even when he did not feel like it, he made himself, by the grace of God, do it. Beloved, if we are going to live for God, here's the, here's the truth. The truth is it's going to cost us. Because walking with God, you see, is not a walk in the park. Walk with God is not a piece of cake. Walking with God, particularly over the long haul, takes us, necessarily so, into rough, rocky terrain. 
It suggests that Enoch went against all of the currents, the popular currents of his day, even from the inward pulls and suggestion of his flesh, and he did everything necessary to maintain his walk with God. Let me say this, it's not entirely true, as was the saying in the 80s, I think it was or before that, let go and let God. Yes, God, the Bible sa- here's what the Bible says, work out your own salvation, for it is God who is at work in you, both to what will and to do of his good pleasure. But here's the point, in the, in the working out, in the carrying out of that verse, it doesn't mean that we're not going to feel the crunch, the pain. But all the while, we must remember that ultimately, at the end of the day, it is God who is empowering us. It is God who is energizing us to do his will, painful and uncomfortable and unpalatable as it might be at times. Enoch's walk then was characterized by disciplined fervor. But second, Enoch's walk was characterized by disciplined focus. His walk was characterized by disciplined focus. Again, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, he walked with God. Now, in the Hebrew of that text, the, the definite article is before God. It's kind of rare. So, literally, here's what the verse is saying. He walked with Ha-Elohim. He walked with the God. What is the idea there? This suggests, beloved, that as far as Enoch was concerned, as far as Enoch was concerned, nothing else mattered. As far as Enoch was concerned, there was one and only one object of true affection, of true devotion, and that was the living God. Enoch was focused on no one else. He was focused on nothing else other than his commitment to God. God and God alone was the supreme object of his affection. God and God alone was the supreme object of his devotion. As Jerry Bridges puts it, Jerry Bridges says this quote, Enoch's life was centered in God. God was the focal point, the pole star of his very existence. His walk was marked by disciplined, disciplined fervor, and disciplined he was in his focus. In the fifth place, Enoch's walk with God, whereby he pleased God, was marked by direction. Enoch's walk with God, whereby he pleased God, was marked by direction. That is to say, he took the same direction. He took the same path that God took. Here's the point. Walking with God necessarily means taking the same path, taking the same direction that God takes. In fact, this is the very idea of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, the literal rendering this, anyone would follow after me. In fact, that's, a, that's where the word that he uses there, the word that is used here in the Greek is the word from which we get our English word, acolyte. And you know what acolytes do? They follow behind the priest. Jesus is saying, if a person is to follow me, 
If they must have an intention, if they won't follow me, they must have an intention to walk after me. In other words, they must be going in the same direction. And so does walking with God. What does walking with God in the same direction look like? What does it look like? And let me give you some suggestions. Number one, walking with God in the same direction means loving the things God loves and hating the things God hates. Loving the things God loves and hating the things God hates, it means we'll be, as it were, men and women, boys and girls after God's own heart. We're going to love what God loves. We're going to hate what God hates. And where one is given to such walk, following in the footsteps of the Lord, one will inevitably take a stand for God. One will inevitably take a stand for truth, take a stand for righteousness. And one will, in taking a stand for God, denounce that which is unholy and ungodly. In other words, there will be no compromise with the evil that surrounds. One will, like Enoch, inevitably take a stand for God, standing for truth and righteousness, denouncing ungodliness, as we see in Jude 14, 15. Read those verses again. Notice the number of times Jude is commending the ungodly, condemning the ungodly for all the ungodliness which they have committed in an ungodly way, the ungodly way in which they have spoken against God. Where one is given to walking with God in the same direction, there cannot be but God-likeness. That is, godliness of life, growing conformity to the Lord in character. Just like Moses, after that protected period in, on the mount, after that lengthy period in, on the mount, 40 days, 40 nights, he spent time with God on the mount. His life, his faith, the word of God says, radiated the glory of God. Walking with God will make one godlike in a sense of being godly, godly in character. Walking with the Lord in the same direction means that we'll be transformed into his likeness, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, from one degree of glory to another. What were the features of Enoch's walk with God? His walk with God, whereby he pleased God, was marked, number one, by a definite, decisive turn to God. There came a point in his life when Enoch came face to face with the reality of God's claim on his life right after the birth of his son Methuselah, and he began to walk with God. True, genuine walk with God always begins with conversion. Second, Enoch's walk with God was marked by devotion. It was marked by determination. It was marked by discipline. Enoch's walk was marked by direction. And finally this morning, Enoch's walk with God, whereby he pleased God, was marked by dependence on God. By dependence on God. And this is what the writer to the Hebrews described in verse 5 of our text as faith. What is faith? Faith is resting on God. Faith is trusting God. Faith is depending on God. Here's what the writer says. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. 
Implied there is this, it was an account of his godly walk by faith that God took him up so that he died, he did not die, but went straight to heaven. Given all the wickedness, the ungodliness that surrounded him, the, the pull and allure of his sinful desires, and Mark here we need to say Enoch was not a perfect man, no, not by any means was he a perfect man. He was a man of like passions as you and I are. He was subject to sin. He was not perfect. And yet he was able to walk with God amidst all the corruption, amidst all the ungodliness. Why? Because of his faith in God, his dependence on God. The faith by which Enoch walked with God and pleased God had to be a faith then of total, absolute dependence on the power and grace of God. For Enoch walking with God stemmed from a recognition, an acute awareness of his insufficiency, an acute awareness of his inherent weaknesses, the fact that if ever he was to live in that corrupt world, if ever he was to maintain his distinctiveness for God, if ever he was to take his stand for God, then he needed to rely on the power and grace of God. And beloved, until you and I recognize our own weakness, until you and I recognize that in and of ourselves we are not equal to the task, we will not be able to walk with God to the extent that Enoch did. You see, walking with God and fellowshipping with God, particularly over the long haul, cannot be done in the energy of self-effort. It cannot. It requires faith. It requires trust in God's power and in God's grace. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 10, 23. He says this, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his steps. We need to understand that. You see, in walking with the Lord, particularly over the long haul, as I said earlier, we're going to be in for some rough and rocky times. We're going to come across hurdles, obstacles in our path. We're going to encounter trials, tribulations, oppositions, because the Word of God tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution and we need the strengthening grace of God and we need faith to rely on God to see us through. Such is the kind of faith, beloved, that even when it seems that the cause of godliness and righteousness is not worth it, even when it seems that we are a minority and we are in a losing battle, faith, such faith in God enables us to recognize that at the end of the day, God will vindicate his glory and God will sustain us and in the end present us blameless, faultless before him. Such is the faith that will enable us to have the determination of will, the conviction, the attitude of heart and mind that would affirm with the songwriter, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though no one joins me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. 
Now, the writer of the Hebrews, as we draw to a close, presents in verse 6 at least two motivating considerations with respect to faith in God, what we must know of God if we are to walk by faith in him. Two things he tells us about God that must be part and parcel of our thinking if we are to intelligently and conscientiously have faith in him. And the first is this, that the God to whom we come is the God who is real. The God to whom we come is the God who is real. For the one who comes to him, who draws near to him, he says, must believe that he is, that he exists. Going back to verse 1 where the writer stated that faith is the evidence of things not seen. The writer seems to be suggesting here that even though Enoch did not see God, even though God was invisible, yet with the eye of faith, Enoch was of the conviction of God's reality nonetheless. Now, to believe that God exists, let me say here, means way more than the sense in which you and I exist. From the biblical standpoint, to say that God exists, means that as the living God, he stands in contradistinction to idols which are non-entities. That's the essential idea of the existence of God in Scripture. The fact that God is the living God, and as such, stands in contradistinction to idols which really are non-entities. It means that he's a God who acts in power, he's a God who acts in grace, in judgment toward us. It means that he's the God who does things. He's the God who makes things happen. He's the God who is active and involved in our world and in our lives. He's the God who what, communicates with us. That's the idea behind God's existence. So that to believe that he exists not only means to believe that he is, but that he is all that he says he is and is able to do. That's what it means to believe that God exists. It is to believe that as the living God, he is able to do, as he says, he is able to do all he says he is able to do, which means, among other things, that when we draw near to him, we must have the conviction, among other things, that he loves and desires the best for us. We must believe when we draw near to him that by his power he can equip us with all that's necessary to live for him, to do his will, to do that which is well-pleasing in his sight, Hebrews 13 and verse 21. And then the second reality we must understand concerning God, the second truth is this, if we are to exercise faith in him, not only must we believe that he is real, but we must believe that he is reasonable. We must believe that he is real. We must believe that he is reasonable. He is a God who rewards. Verse 6b, he rewards those who seek him. And the idea of seeking him here is to seek him with intensity. The King James Version brings it out more accurately. Diligently seek him. Diligently, earnestly. In other words, the kind of relationship with God that is in view here is one in which we hunger and thirst for him in which we arduously pursue him. That's the idea here. And regarding uh, this pursuit, the word of God tells us that he rewards those 
who seek him. And how rich and numerous are the rewards, the promises of what he will do for those who seek him. First Chronicles 28 verse 9, if you seek him, uh, Solomon, David told his son Solomon, he will be found by you. Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13, God promised. Israel, he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. We must believe that God is real. And we must believe that he's a rewarder. Now somebody says, well, should I live my Christian life from a motive of rewards? Well, God places a premium on rewards, doesn't he? And the writer of the Hebrews knew the importance of rewards. In fact, four times in this epistle, he mentions the word rewards, once in relation to judgment, and the other times, Hebrews 2, verse 2, and then Hebrews 10, 35, Hebrews 11, 6, this verse, and Hebrews eleven twenty six. he talks about rewards. God knows the value of rewards, and one of the motivations, one of the incentives you and I have to trust him, to continue walking with him, is that at the end of the day, here's the point, he rewards us. That should not be the driving compelling motive, but God just adds that there for us to encourage us. Where do you stand this morning? I speak to those who have not yet come to Christ as Savior. You cannot begin to walk with God until there has been a definite point in time when you come face to face with your sins, with the reality of who God is, with the reality of who you are, and with the truth of God's Son, the Lord Jesus. The fact that he died for sins, and it is only in turning to him, trusting in him, and him alone for your salvation, that you can begin a journey with God, a walk with God. I speak to those who are saved, who are Christians. You're feeling weary, discouraged. Let me say this. Hang in there. Why? Because faithful is he who promised. The word of God tells us. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Serving God is not easy. But here's the truth. With Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God, we can we can, and we will, and we must, by God's grace and for his glory. Amen.